Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the host of a special investigation series of Maryland Behind the Icon during the 60th anniversary of the star's death, where we'll look into the mystery and break down for you, the audience, of what the facts are versus the lies around the star that have been plaguing her for over six decades. We have some of the top Maryland experts with me on the panel. Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, lifetimes in films of Marilyn Monroe, and April Via Via, now Chambers, Marilyn Monroe, A Day in the Life, and Donald McGovern, Murder Orthodoxies, a non-conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. Each week, we will break down for you what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. All right, guys, we meet again here on the investigation series of Behind the Icon. Last week, we were answering some of the listener questions. We still have more. And this one, we do get asked a lot. And I'm going to start with you, Donald. Would exhuming the body give you the ability to know if there was a cracked rib? Is there any proof from the autopsy report? Uh, Well, I did a little research on the state of a body that's been entombed or buried for 60 years, and there could be just about anything. It could be still preserved to a certain extent, but it could also have disappeared. So it would be a crapshoot to exhume Marilyn's body to see if it had a cracked rib. And also, I just had a friend who passed who they did crack her rib and in the autopsy report, it actually showed. So the reality is, is that there was no evidence in the autopsy report of a cracked rib. But Gary, you and I have talked a lot about this in the ambulance theory and Goodnight Maryland Radio. Let's address this issue in terms of the ambulance theory, James Hall and his role and his credibility in this whole theory about uh, Marilyn having an injection of some kind by Dr. Greenson. And I think that's where this question comes from, because the claim is that someone plunged a hypodermic needle into either her sternum or her rib, and this led to her death, and it obviously would have created some trauma. So I think we first have to say that the autopsy report is very detailed. And so an autopsy involves an examination for trauma to the skeleton and the organs, in addition to toxicological chemical analysis. And so in terms of would exhuming the body produce more information, well, during the autopsy, the sternum and the ribs are sawed and removed so that the organs can be removed during the autopsy process. So if you were to look at the skeleton now, you're going to see the skeleton severely traumatized by the autopsy itself. And so we know when we read the autopsy that the heart and abdominal cavities did not show any excess of fluid or blood. So there was no bleeding. We know that there was a dissection of the heart. It was weighed. There was no fluid around the heart and the coronary articles were all intact. So the autopsy goes on record to report that. Yeah, let's also talk about James Hall and also Murray Lebenwitz, which is the two ambulance guys that get connected in this story and, you know, the lie detector test, et cetera, and what was said from the DA report. The DA report went into great detail with James Hall. 
In fact, he reached out to the L.A. District Attorney's Office under the name of Rick Stone. This was in August of 1982, and he requested cash for information. And he also asked the LADA to purchase a plane ticket for him. And they got some information from him in a telephone call. But then he retracted a lot of what he said. And he said that he really didn't want to speak to them. And he would get back to them, which he never did. But then he sold his story to the Globe magazine, which was a tabloid. And they published it in November of 1982. And so the conversation that James Hall had with the LADA took place on August 13th, and his story was very different. There were inconsistencies to what was published in the Globe. So the LADA did some pretty intense investigation and tracking down. So they went to a man by the name of Carl Bellanozzi or Bellanzi, and they asked for the names of people who worked for the Schaefer Ambulance Company. And they did track down a gentleman by the name of Patrick Obly, another gentleman by the name of Joe Tardowski. And then they were able to get some information from a gentleman by the name of Ken Hunter. And so Mr. Hunter reported that they did arrive on the scene, which was customary when a death is reported. The police usually send out an ambulance and an ambulance and a fire truck were dispatched, according to Eunice Murray. And what time was this? This was after the police were called at 425. And so the three responding officers came, an ambulance came, and a fire truck came. And Mrs. Murray, in her memoir, says that she was actually chastised by the fire truck drivers who told her that she should have called emergency services immediately before anyone else. And so Mr. Hunter said that clearly the person had been dead. In fact, I'm going to quote what he said. I think she was pretty cold at that time. She was blue, like she had been laying there for a while. I could stand across the room and tell that she was dead. And then when he was told about the account of James Hall, Hunter said that his work partner the night of Monroe's death was a man named Murray Leibowitz. And when he was shown of when Hunter was shown a photograph of James Hall that was published in the Globe, he identified that the man pictured in the Globe article was not his partner during the Monroe dispatch on August 5th. Well, Walt Schaefer originally testified that the two men that were dispatched were Ken Hunter and Murray Leibowitz. James Hall was not mentioned by Walt Schaefer. Let me just, I just want to reiterate this for the listeners, because you have to understand something. Just because somebody writes a book and puts it in a book doesn't mean that it's true. Go back to the LADA report, the people that actually worked for the ambulance company, because those people are actually testifying versus somebody giving a media interview or selling their story to the Globe. And let's just say that the Globe is not investigative journalism by any means. There's the people that put out the Maryland's Red Diary. Oh, my God. This is a tabloid. You know, if you read the Globe, you're going to find out that a woman married a shark and that, you know, Maryland was bitten on the neck by vampires and that aliens abducted her. So, you know, we can't look at tabloids like this as any kind of real news source or anything that's credible. Hall's only goal was to get paid. That becomes clear when you listen to the tape conversations between Hall and DA's investigators. He only wanted to get paid. But he originally testified that he and Leibowitz arrived at Maryland's house 
between four and six and she was still alive. Well, that's not possible. The reality is, is that her autopsy report, her toxology, all this stuff doesn't lend to herself to dying at 1030 or four o'clock in the morning. And that is a fact. Okay. That's based on the autopsy report and what we know to be true as a fact, not a tabloid, which is the globe. The original ambulance story appeared in Robert Slatzer's first book. That's where well, it first started. And, and let me just say this. If you want to know about Robert Slatzer, go back a few episodes and you'll know he's part of the rumor mill. So you start to see and connect the dots, guys, of how this story that you've been hearing for six decades is just not true. It's not based in fact. With that said, there's also a question that says, Dr. Engelberg refused to give Marilyn an injection. What was this about? What was the substance? And is there any significance to this situation in terms of Marilyn's demise? Well, I don't know the source of Engelberg refusing to give her an injection on her last day. Certainly, he was interviewed and Greenson went on statement and there's no discussion of that. So I can tell you what the facts are about Engelberg and injections. So he submitted a creditor's claim to Monroe's estate after her death. And included in that was a call to her residence on August 3rd when he refilled those prescriptions. So that was on Friday. And the charges included injections that were given on July 23rd, August 1st, and August 3rd. And so this is what Engelberg says about injections. He said that Monroe had suffered from a sinus infection while she was working on something's got to give and that he treated her with liver vitamin injections. What those are, I can't tell you. <laughs> well, you know say, how the old Hollywood stars, they were laced with barbiturates and B12. I mean, it was talk about their health uh, and well-being, right? So he said that when he visited her residence on the 3rd, he administered such an injection and that, you know, that needle mark would have been undetectable within a few hours because she was alive and it would have healed. So we know that he gave her an injection on the 3rd. Now, this is the concern that I would have. You know, these injections that were given by doctors and studio doctors were often amphetamines to increase energy. And in the 60s, before mood stabilizing drugs, some people suffering from depression were given stimulants. And it was believed that the stimulant would kind of uh, impact their mood and alleviate their depression. You know, now we know that that's not the case. Actually, for people with bipolar disorder, which we believe Marilyn had, according to uh, Dr. Engelberg, a stimulant, we know, increases the manic episode or the hypomanic episode. So if you take someone with bipolar disorder and give them an antidepressant or a stimulant, that might thrust them into a mixed episode of mania and depression, or might put them in an episode of mania or depression, which is really detrimental for someone in that case. Gary, but here's the other thing too. And I just, I want to point this out. The hundreds and hundreds of, of medications that she was given, all of these medications blended together over the 60, 90 day period on top of not sleep. I mean, that has got to be a huge indicator in terms of her mental health, don't you think? Absolutely. And this is only my speculation. But if on August 3rd, she was given a stimulant, that would explain why she probably had trouble sleeping. 
We know now that bipolar disorder responds to a mood-stabilizing drug, and there really weren't any at the time. There was only lithium, which was used experimentally. But if Monroe was given any kind of a stimulant in her last days or her last hours, that could explain her impulsivity and her poor judgment and why she might have taken action on any thoughts to hurt herself. That is a red flag right there. And this is also the story that we want you to get, because these aspects of the case, you always hear about the Kennedys, the mob, the ambulance theory, the Red Diary, but you don't really hear about Marilyn's own mental health, acute mental health issues. And for anybody that lives in this day and age with all these celebrities that have overdosed you know how critical that is in terms of their behaviors. And back in 1962, they were still quite antiquated. So I have one last question for both of you. What do you think is the biggest gap in the Maryland story? Do you have a theory on it or do you think we'll ever know the truth? I'll start with you, Don. I don't think there is a gap in her story if we're talking about how she died. So I think we know the truth. And so why do you say that you think we know the truth? Well, her autopsy report is clear to me that the drugs that killed Marilyn were not injected. She swallowed them. That's why there were three times as many barbiturates in her liver as in her blood. Had she been given an injection, they would have been completely reversed. That's true. Plus, she lived a few hours after she swallowed the pill. She didn't die immediately, which allowed for the drugs to build up in her liver as her liver began to metabolize the drugs. Hey, Don, I just want to also say one thing for the audience. We hear this a lot. Why wasn't there crystals in her stomach? Because her liver was still functioning. I just had to add that extra one there because a lot of people don't know that. After she swallowed the pills, uh, she did not die immediately. So her digestive system would have continued to work. That's exactly Nicholas Cozy, Dr. Nicholas Cozy performed some experiments, I believe in 2004, which proved that Nimbutal broke down and dissolved quickly, that Marilyn probably would have not even have been asleep yet by the times the nebutals would have been out of her stomach. Well, the other thing real quick, Gary, that we have to put into perspective is that this was not Marilyn's first rodeo on these drugs. She was used to a high tolerance. So her body breakdown was a lot easier than, let's say, myself or somebody else that is not used to taking these high quantity of doses in terms of this type of medication. Well, not only that, her stomach was empty. She hadn't eaten that day. Yeah, that's also spends a lot. And there's nothing to absorb it. Gary, what were you going to say? Well, these sedatives are not food, so they don't lay in the stomach. They're meant to break down so that they work. And this is something I think that many people miss because they're looking for residue. And I go back to that point I make. You can't have a pill to sleep where it lays in the stomach. It just wouldn't work. Medication breaks down quickly so that it has an immediate effect. Otherwise, you'd have to take the pill at three o'clock in the afternoon if you wanted to go to sleep at nine o'clock at night. And people think there should be some crystals, but that's just not the case. And I know in 1982, when the LADA interviewed other pathologists at the time, one of them, Stephen Boyd, talked about a recent case, an autopsy that he was working on while they were reinvestigating Monroe's case. And it was very similar. It was a male who had overdosed on Nembatol and there was no residue of the pills or crystals of the pills found in his stomach as well. And so that is just common with oral overdoses. I think that the mystery about that is perpetuated by people who read Robert Slatzer, 
and Robert Slater used Sidney Weinberg as a medical expert in his book to kind of perpetuate these myths. But when the LADA interviewed Weinberg, he reported that he did not say much of that information to Slater. So he even refuted what Slater quoted him to say. And so I want everybody that is not familiar with Robert Slater, you might be just listening to this episode, go back to the Robert Slater rumor mill episode because we we spend two episodes on this man. So you will hear about how he really contributed to the Maryland rumors. Well, a considerable amount of what is still reported today in all of the myriad of books that have been written and probably will be written in the future began with Robert Slater. That's for sure. Gary, what is the gap for you in the Maryland story? Well, you asked us if I think we'll ever know the truth. And I would have to say that I think we have access to the truth. The truth is often the simplest explanation. And we know about mental illness and addiction. We know about Monroe's struggles with mental illness and addiction. We know about the type of treatment she received. And we have information about the access to drugs that she had. So I think we're very, very close to the truth. As far as the gaps, these are things that I would want to know. I would want to know why Engelberg refilled prescriptions of Zembotol and chloral hydrate for a month's supply within just days of having prescribed it. I would want to know why he didn't tell Greenson that he prescribed the Nembatol in late July and why he also didn't tell him on August 3rd. Uh, you know, my question is if he was enabling Monroe's addiction and if he was colluding with her. To me, that's a huge question. I'd also want to know why didn't anyone actually go to Monroe's house to check on her when Lawford believed that she might have overdosed? And I could understand why they didn't call the police or the authorities to rescue her, which would have likely have saved her life because they were concerned about her reputation and her screen career if this had gotten out. And they were concerned about Lawford not going there because he was intoxicated and he was related to the president. But why didn't someone else actually go to the home to check on her? That, I think, is a huge gap. And I think the question about who was prescribing the Nembatol in the end, was it Engelberg alone or was it Siegel and Engelberg or were there other doctors? We don't really know the sources, the potential sources for some of the medications that Monroe received, although we have a lot of information about the near 900 pills that Engelberg prescribed in the last 60 days of her life. And not to mention, Engelberg later actually denied ever prescribing chloral hydrate to Maryland. Sephanol as well. And we have that prescription from July 10th for Sephanol and Tuanol and all those prescriptions for chloral hydrate. So what I'd like people to look at is a balance here, because it's very easy to look at a sensational story like the Marilyn Monroe mystery and put the Kennedys in it and put in, you know, the mob. And it sounds all glamorous in terms of who she knew, et cetera. But when you really break it down and you listen to this series from start to end, you're going to start to understand that it doesn't add up. And so here is my gap in the story. Initially, when I started this investigation, probably like some of you listening, there wasn't anybody that was going to convince me otherwise that Marilyn Monroe wasn't murdered. 
I had, you know, listened and, you know, watched all of these documentaries that pinpointed the sensationalism. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. It wasn't until I started doing the Goodnight Marilyn radio show that I started to realize, wait a minute, these facts are not adding up. And when I learned more about mental health through Gary and through some of our other experts that are, have been on, the, on this show, and Gary in particular that knows a lot about bipolar and borderline personality and, and childhood trauma, sexual trauma, which Marilyn all had, plus an acute mental health legacy from a lot of her relatives, starting with her mother, you know, and then going back. We have to really look at that because that's factual. So then when you want to put Bobby Kennedy at the center of this story, it doesn't add up. And I'll tell you why it doesn't add up. It's because I had a chance to listen to Anthony Summers tapes. One of them was a guy that was actually at the Lawford dinner party. And they were having kind of off the record kind of conversations. And so his comment back to Summers was, well, gosh, you know, I didn't know Bobby Kennedy was in town that day. If I would have known, I'm sure I would have known he was in town. And this was Milt Evans, the very famous entertainment manager and was at the Lawford house. Okay. So that's one. But number two, we have been talking throughout this series about the actual proof that Bobby Kennedy was in the Santa Cruz mountains with two other families besides his own. And he had a large family. And Donald, isn't it true that he recently had a interview with his son, Robert Kennedy Jr.? Well, Megan Kelly interviewed Robert Kennedy Jr. And she brought up Marilyn Monroe and pointed out that all about all the rumors that Bobby Kennedy was involved in her death and Bobby Kennedy was there the night she died and so forth. And Robert Kennedy Jr. said that is not true because they were in Northern California on a ranch and also on a camping trip because I think they left the Bates Ranch and went to Oregon and then they went to the World's Fair. Is that not correct, Gary? Seattle World's Fair. Seattle. That's right. I'm sorry. But I think they, they did camp out for a few days before they made it to Seattle. The gap in the story for me, I would like that to be a mass public knowledge so we could start debunking these theories once and for all. As we've been saying in this series, we are going to break down for you the Netflix documentary and we have the blonde movie coming out. The blonde movie, unfortunately, is being called a biopic and it is not. It is a fantasy story of Marilyn Monroe. Our dedication to you, the listener, is to get you the facts as we know them. We'll tell you if it's a probable theory and we'll break down definitely if it's an outlandish rumor. As of today, we've answered your questions. We wanna thank you for all of your support. I also wanna support these two gentlemen for taking the time to be able to be with us and get the truth out there. Donald, please promote your book and your website, please. Well, you can find all of the information that I found out about Marilyn in my research on my website, Marilyn from the 22nd row. Marilyn from the 22nd row, if you want to see those pictures, as well as some in-depth information as he breaks it down in detail. Gary, how can they get your book as well as you have an upcoming book that you'd like to talk about as well? Yes, Nina, I'm the author of Cursum Perficio, Marilyn Monroe's Brentwood Hacienda, 
which is just the story of her last six months in the home in Brentwood. And I'm also the author of Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe, Volumes 1 and 2, which celebrates her life, her legacy, and her resilience. And I'm publishing the third volume in the trilogy, which is dedicated to the investigation of her death, only because of the very unusual fixation on her death and the misinformation. So I wanted to go on record as a researcher to provide some accurate information and facts based upon this very odd fixation that our culture has on this woman's death and the circumstances of her death and some very outlandish belief about what happened to her. So I address in my third volume kind of the cultural and psychological phenomenon of this fixation on her death and where that might come from. Because that in itself is very, very interesting to me. Because to me, this case is really about mental illness and addiction and prescribing practices of the professionals that were dealing with her. And somehow it kind of turned into this whodunit, this kind of very bizarre suspenseful story, which to me is so far removed from what happened to her. That in itself fascinates me. And most of the true Maryland fans that know a lot about her story actually do not believe that she was murdered. Because if you look beyond the headlines, beyond the statements, and you go for the facts, and you just ask yourself some questions, does this add up? we all want to believe a sensational story. I mean, it makes for good TV. It makes for good movies, but does it really make for the truth? And our dedication to you during this series is the truth. So with that said, we'll be coming up in just a couple of weeks here with the Netflix documentary breakdown for you. What is fact? What is probable theory? And what is an outlandish rumor? I'd like to thank my guests and the guest panel, Donald McGovern, as well as Gary Vitaka Robles could not do this series without you. And we all know the truth will be known.